I love that hymn. One of my favorites. John chapter 7. We're going to be looking at the first 13 verses together. Let's hear the word of the Lord together this morning, church. After this, Jesus traveled to Galilee since he did not want to travel in Judea because the Jews were trying to kill him. And the Jewish festival of shelters was near. So his brother said to him, leave here and go up to Judea so that your disciples can see your works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he seeks public recognition. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus told them, my time has not yet arrived. But your time is always at hand. The world cannot hate you, but it does hate me because I testify about it and that its works are evil. Go up to the festival yourselves. I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After this, he had said these things. He stayed in Galilee. And after his brothers had gone up to the festival, then he also went up and not openly, but secretly. The Jews were looking for him at the festival saying, where is he? And there was a lot of murmuring about him among the crowd. Some were saying, he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he's deceiving the people. Still, nobody was talking publicly about him for fear of the Jews. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So we are getting back into the Gospel of John this morning. Uh, I, I enjoyed our series through the theology and, uh, of the church. We've been working through the last few weeks. But to me, there's nothing like just systematic, steady, practical, uh, progressive study through the Word of God through book by book. And so I'm very thankful to be getting back here. We, we kind of diverged from it back in early June, did a series through Jonah, did a series on the doctrine of the church, and now we are back and we will sit here for a while. So let's go ahead and get into it. Before we get into it, though, let me just say this. Uh, be in prayer. I mean, you guys know this, but Brother Dale, of course, passed away. Friday night, Harriet is at home. I'm sure they're watching on my TV. We are, our prayers are with you, sister, and you and Monda, and we're, 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 we are here for you in any way we can do to, to support you during this time. And I just want to encourage you to do the same. Uh, if you reach out to them, bring encouragement. Um, honestly, just be willing to go over and spend some time with Harriet. She would probably really, really enjoy that. Uh, also, be praying for the Brits. Um, his sister, Brian, Brian's sister, passed away this past week, and they're on their way for funeral arrangements in Virginia. Uh, so we got a lot of people, and we also got a number of people who are out with illnesses of various capacities. I myself am struggling with allergies. That's why my, my, I got the pastor low voice going on this morning. And so we'll hope that I, we can endure this, this uh, together. I was talking to a pastor friend of mine this morning, and I was telling him all the, what this last week had been and all the struggles we were having, all the different things we were facing, and elders have been sick and all kinds of things. And he was like, hey, man, just remember, just give him Jesus. And, uh, and I told him, I said, man, that's all I got this morning. That's all I got. So that's all I'm going to give you. Is that okay with you? Um, John chapter 7 will probably give it to us about as clearly as we can get it there. So let's, let's see what the Lord has for us this morning in this text. Um, in the first six chapters of our study in Gospel John, we've been watching the Apostle John reveal for us wonderful vignettes of who Jesus is and what he has come to do. And in some ways, as clear as that may have been to us sitting on this side of the cross, Jesus is still very much cloaked in his own day. People don't see him for who he really is. But John is using these signs, like particularly seven signs, and all these focuses on the I am statements throughout these first six chapters to progressively reveal to us Jesus. Those who would read his text, he wants them to see Jesus. I want you to see Jesus as we preach God's word each week. 
See, Jesus' ministry continues to grow during this entire time, this following. It's attracted a lot of people to his ministry. And when we left off in chapter 6, at the end of chapter 6, you would think everything's going great, but it wasn't. Actually, quite the contrary. As Jesus' teaching continues to get harder and more difficult for people to grasp, it became less and less tenable to his hearers. And the last thing we see in the end of chapter 6 is that uh, uh, many people fell away. Many people walked away. To the point that Jesus even looks at his 12 disciples, his faithful ones who've been with him the entire time, and says, Why, you're not going away either? And of course, G Peter says, where else will we go? You have the words of life. But that was not the case for the majority of people who are following Jesus, was it? They're following Jesus because they love the things he's doing. They love what he can give to them. Right? They're in it for the glory of the gifts, not the glory of the cross, as we'll see more clearly in this this sequence with his brothers here as we walk through this text this morning. And so this leaving it off leaves us in a very precarious situation. It's this small band of disciples are still now, they're kind of, they grew and all of a sudden they're back down to this smaller group of people. And, uh, and what we're going to see today is a lot of what passes for Christianity in our day is the very same thing that was passing for Christianity in Jesus's day. Easy believism. Um, uh, and we, see, and we see this popping up all over the place, right? This whole pop up, you know, just pop up and shut up people. Many people today are not willing to bear the cost of that. So in other words, we have this, you know, we make the gospel so easy for people to believe, which is, this is true. We want this. We want to make it, we don't, we want to make it simple, but not easy believism to the point that when difficulties arise, people just fall off. And that's happening everywhere around us. And so I want to encourage us to think about how this, relate, this text relates to even the context of our own lives, right? And what we're going to see in Jesus' teaching over the next couple of chapters reveals the deep skepticism that resides in the human heart. Those things that, that are there in the back of our minds constantly, mostly for unbelievers, but even in the life of the believer, we can have these skepticisms that will then prevent us from really resting in Jesus and trusting Jesus with all of our lives. And what we'll see in a couple of weeks is that it's pointing to the fact that we're, the blindness that we live in is phenomenal. We'll see that particularly in chapter 8. So one of the methods that John uses as he unpacks these signs about Jesus is he relates Jesus' teaching in these public, these public displays of his ministry. He, he connects them always to a festival. So you've seen him go up for the Passover and he's teaching and there's this big crowd, right? And he goes up into all these different festivals, always these feasts that Jesus is doing these things in. And, and, G, and John is doing this intentionally because he wants people to see that those feasts are pointing to Jesus. Amen. And if you know anything about um, Israel's like feasts, they have three major feasts. They have the feast of the, the Passover or the unleavened bread, which of course was their spring feast. It was the pre-harvest, right? It was the, the barley harvest. And it was a time when they remembered the Exodus where God was faithful to his people and he rescued them from Egypt because of the blood of the lamb. And then in the midsummer, they would have this feast called the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost, which was about eight weeks later, seven weeks later, excuse me. And early, and this would be a time when they would offer early first fruits to the Lord for what he is providing for them. And it would be a way in which they, the people would remind themselves of the work they're called to do as his people as they wait upon the Lord. And then there's the third feast, the Feast of Booths, or Feast of Tabernacles, or Shelters. It's known under different names. 
And this was the fall feast. This was what everyone was looking forward to. It was the completion of the harvest. It was a time when all the work would come in into the house and people would be joyful because everything was at its completion. And during this particular feast, as we'll see in this context, are people come from all over, from socioeconomic strata and everywhere, to make temporary dwelling around Jerusalem. They would literally make up these little booths, these little temporary shelters with, 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 with leaves and, and, and branches over them. It was like a massive national campout. It, it, it's, yeah, I mean, we could get down on that, right? Um, it's, it's, it's not Woodstock, thankfully, but it is definitely a national thing where the people are coming together and they are worshiping the Lord and they're reminding themselves during this time of God's faithfulness when they were in the wilderness, when they did live in temporary dwellings. And that this was anticipating what? That they would have an eternal dwelling, a permanent dwelling. Hopefully you see where this is going this morning. That there's something wonderful about John's particular use of these feasts to connect to Jesus' teaching. So that we can see the gospel come to life as we walk through John. So these Jewish feasts framed out the entire Jewish calendar. They, they did so, so, that, so that they could, and listen, these feasts were everything. And as, as, as popular as the Passover is, we think of it popularly because we go back to Easter and we as Christians celebrate the resurrection. But you got to understand it for the Jew, like the Feast of Booze was the most popular thing. This is what they were hoping for. This is where they put all of their anchor for. So that really helps us understand what's happening here as we dig into this text we've just read here a few minutes ago. And here's what I want to do for the next few minutes. I want to ask three questions. In fact, what I want to say is I want this text to ask us three questions, to force us to ask and wrestle with three questions. Here they are on the front end, and we'll just kind of walk through them one by one. First question I want us to be wrestling with this morning, that I think this text forces us to do so, is where are you, where am I tempted to be skeptical? Where does skepticism still reside within me? It's there. Are you aware of it? You can see it sometimes more clearly when you're not connected to Jesus. But where does that still reside in us today? The second question we will wrestle with is, what time is it? I mean, really, what time is it? Are we aware of the times around us? Are we aware of what time we're situated in? And do we see Jesus based on really understanding the time that we're in? And then third question, what did you expect? What do you expect from the Christian life? Are you honest about what, what, what will happen or are you living a little bit like foghorn, leghorn, a little ostrich thing that you used to chase around and he'd put his head in the, in the sand? I think sometimes Christians do that. We just put our heads in the sand and we ignore all of what's really going around us and we don't expect what truly God gives us as his people. So three questions again. Where are you tempted to be skeptical to? What time is it? And three, what did you expect? Let's talk about this first question. Where are you tempted to be skeptical? Look in verses 1 through 5, just real quick. Jesus is there. It's in the, in the time of, we're told it's in verse 2, the, the, the Jewish festival of shelters was at hand. And Jesus had been doing all of his ministry in Galilee because he was fearful going down in Judea because of uh, threats to his life. And then we get these brothers who come in this situation. Now, this is his biological brothers. Uh, and, and they're coming here. And obviously, verse 5 tells us a little bit about their heart. They don't believe in Jesus. They don't believe in Jesus. And so they're kind of aggravating Jesus. Why don't you go up here and show your disciples these works and really show them who you are. Display what you're all about. If you really are this guy, go do this. They're provoking Jesus. they got some locker room talk going on here. 
No one does in secret while he's seeking anything in secret while he's seeking public recognition. Right away, we see right there, they don't get what Jesus is about. Jesus isn't seeking public attention. He is glorious in himself. He doesn't need your attention to make him more glorious. They think Jesus is all about making a big scene for himself. And so he's been spending in this, and this, this time period here in verse 7 really represents about six months because it's been a roughly six months since before this because we've, this is before that we saw the Passover here in the last feast there. So it's been some time here that Jesus has been doing ministry in Galilee. They assume, though, his brothers, that Jesus' decision for those last few months are what? That he's just fearful. That he's not willing to really spend it to embrace the cost of his ministry. And so they think he's a fraud. And maybe some of us in here feel like sometimes are questioning whether or not we think Jesus is a fraud. But they're being presumptuous. They don't see what's really happening here. The text is clear. His brothers are in deep unbelief. Now, what does that mean for us here? What do we take away from that? Well, first of all, we need to recognize in this, there's, it's revealing something about the nature of our skepticism. There's something about this nature of skepticism that is revealed here. And, and let me just point out a couple of things that will help us. There's something really fragile about our existence that even if we're near to Jesus, we still don't see him. That we can be nearness to Jesus, near to Jesus, and that's still not enough. That being near to Jesus is not enough. It is only enough to be completely consumed with Jesus, to be indwelt with Christ's spirit in our life. I mean, think about this. To be so close, like his brothers were, and yet be so far away. I wonder how many of us in here have found ourselves in places like this. We've kind of assumed nearness to Jesus, but we're really not consumed with Jesus. We're not really indwelt with Christ in his spirit. We do it because we've been in the church all of our life, and we just kind of play the role. We, we do what we do, and we do always continue to do it. Friends, to be close to Jesus is not enough. To being consumed in Jesus is everything. And these guys clearly are not consumed with Jesus. I mean, perhaps you, you, you think, and I, I mean, listen, my, my, my initial thought when I was reading this was like, how did these guys miss it? Maybe that's where you are. Maybe you're sitting here thinking, I'm flabbergasted of how these guys cannot see Jesus. I mean, he's right there. They've seen everything. How is it they do not see Jesus of all the people? And listen, all of his brothers didn't believe in Jesus until after Jesus died and was resurrected. And of course, we know James is one of them. And friends, let me just say this to you. As much as we may be flabbergasted with that, please never forget where we came from. That to, to, to forget that you and I, before Christ took hold of us, is, is, is to deny what the gospel is all about in the first place. That we're sinners in desperate situation, that our death and our sin is pervasive and it clouds everything about us. And so if these men have not been awakened by the Spirit, they could not see Jesus no matter how close they were to Jesus. And same thing for us. You can be in here in this room this morning. You can be in your church all your life. And you can be near to the things of God, but you can, you, you can miss Jesus entirely. It's amazing to me how many people I've counseled over the years and talked to and led to Christ who, out of one obscure sermon I may have preached or one of my other brothers I've served with has preached, and they're like, I finally got the gospel. I finally see it. They've been in church all their life. 
And all of a sudden, it's like, now you see it? You've been on this all your life. This is what's been, been taught to you all your life. But friends, this is the wonderful thing about the gospel, is when God is ready, he will make you ready. And that's the wonderful thing we got to remember about the gospel, is that when God is ready, he will make you ready. But until he is ready, you'll never be ready. It's just not possible. Don't forget that this skepticism also still latches into our own lives, is it not? That you and I, even though we can be part of the, the throng of God, the throng of Christ, it can latch on into our lives and it can still create deafening effects on our lives to be able to not see things as they truly are. Never take that for granted. Why? Because sin twists our minds, is it not? Sin twists our hearts to believe toxic and destructive things about our lives. It, it twists our view of our earthly conditions. And so, you know, perhaps, again, this is conjecture, I don't know, but perhaps these brothers who most likely lived in a poor side of town were like, hey, bro, I see what you're doing for all those guys. What about us? We're your, we're your, we're your genetic kin here. How are you not taking care of us? And so sometimes sin will, will twist us into being so consumed with our certain circumstances right here in front of us that we're unable to see the goodness of God all around us. And we do this today, right? God, where are you in my suffering? Why have you allowed this pain into my life? Why won't you do something about the conflict in the world today? It's everywhere, right? We, we, and, and listen, if you, if you want to stop for a second... And consider the last year through this lens. Know that God is sovereign even as COVID rages. And one of the reasons that we know this is that God himself, COVID wasn't a surprise to him. It's a surprise to us. We struggle with it. We're human. We're going to wrestle with these kinds of things. And that's true and right. In this tough season can have us spinning upside down. But we can often do exactly what maybe his brothers were doing here, right? Looking at our current circumstances, God, you don't love me. You don't love us. Otherwise, you do something about this. Again, we fail in those moments to be, and we end up being just like his brothers, unable to see Jesus. We're near to him, but we're not actually consumed with him. And so, friends, this is something that reminded me as I was praying through this. Like, this is what we need to remind ourselves, but also what the world needs from us, the church today. Can I, can I tell you what I believe the church, what the world really needs from the church today? Well, the church doesn't need your triumphalism. I'm bigger than COVID. Because I'm in Christ. That's true. Wonderfully true. But they need you and I to enter into their fear and struggle. Be the kind of people who know and, and are not trying to be something that we're not. Because this world is a fearful place. And until Jesus returns, we're going to be plunged into this constantly, whether COVID lasts another two years or something else entirely comes in five years or ten years until Jesus returns. Amen. The world doesn't need our glib triumphalism. Don't turn the gospel into that. Please. For the sake of Christ, don't turn it, the gospel into that. Don't do that. You know why? Because no one cares 
about my triumphalistic joy if I can't enter into their sorrow in that moment? If all I'm doing as a Christian is dismissing sorrow and fear, we don't really understand what it means to be humans that are broken by the fall. And until Jesus comes, that is going to continue. And one day, wonderfully, Jesus is going to eradicate that entirely for those who believe. But that time has not arrived yet. The time now is to be with people. Not just denying how bad it is, but offering advice, or offering advice or remedies, but to actually be God's people who are lockstep with the world, in the world, not of the world, but in the world, creating space for the light of the gospel to shine. Something that's really a big commitment I have these days. I've told you this before and I'll say it again. I don't trust anyone who can't show me their sorrow and grief. I don't. People are so shameful about sharing their sin and sharing their struggles. I find this all the time. I do this in men's groups and we do this in counseling. People are so, so, so hard to like, share those kinds of things. But I always try to remember those, remind those brothers, like, I want to see you. Because if I can't see you, I don't know how to bring Christ to you. And friends, they need to see us. All the struggles and all the wrestlings, all the fears, all the anxieties, just like that but people who are turning that over to Christ, right? Amen? So sin twists our minds in our earthly lives. Sin also twists our minds when we think we need things from those people who rule us or lead us, right? I mean, this is always an issue. It's why the psalmist constantly reminds us that we put too much trust in princes and kings, do we not? We're always looking for these people to be the people who are going to fix the problems that are all around us. See, Jesus' brothers, they believed that it was, it was going to be a great, if, if Jesus was going to be this great movement leader, he had to act like it. This is what we want of our kings. Act like it, Jesus. Show yourself to be a man, Jesus. He needed to shamelessly stand up in the, on the most popular feast of the year there, the Feast of Booze, and he needed to promote himself. He needed to market his vision for the world. And if he wasn't willing to do this, then he's a fraud. Friends, that's not the kind of leader Jesus comes to be. Clearly in this text, that's not the leader Jesus comes to be. Jesus, again, I said earlier, Jesus is glorious whether or not you recognize that or not. He doesn't need you to recognize it for him to be glorious. He doesn't need me to recognize that. And this is what humanity has been wanting in our kings since the beginning. This is not why the Israelites were demanding kings like their neighbors. They weren't happy with the king that they had, which was God himself. Friends, this is part of the human condition. To constantly be putting our faith and hope in princes and kings as people who will, who will provide all of our needs, when in reality, they are in the same situation that you and I are in. The root of all of this, the real issue, is desiring or pursuing worldly results from God and not really wanting God himself. Let me say that again in case you missed it. Desiring and pursuing worldly results from God and not really God himself. They want the, his brothers, and many times we want the glory of the consummation of Jesus without the glory of the crucifixion of Jesus, of the cross of Jesus. This is not what Satan was doing to Jesus. Stand up here. Demand of God to give you bread. 
demand of your God. Stand here and I will give you the nations if you'll just bow to me. Jesus' temptations are the very same temptations that Adam and Eve experienced in the garden and what every human being has been experiencing since the very beginning. To, to, to say either we're going to submit ourselves to the sovereignty and the care and the goodness of God or we're going to submit ourselves to the sovereignty and the care of impotent gods here on earth. This is what we're called. This is, the, this is always the choice before us. And friends, if we choose to put all of our hope in these earthly kings and princes, there's always a trade-off. And we've got to recognize it's always there. Trading the comfort of Christ, in some cases, for the comfort of power of the earthly king. And when that king comes to make the bill due, there will be a cost to it. There always has been. Look at history. History tells us this. It always does. And the wonderful thing is, is when we put our, cast our hopes on the God of the universe... There is a cost, but guess what? Jesus bears that cost. And Jesus alone bears that cost for his people. So then, that's the root. That's the nature of our skepticism. And I believe in in this room today, and I know that I continue to wrestle with it constantly, that that's where we need to to do the work of of recognizing where where are our hearts at any given moment as it relates to Jesus, whether you're a believer or you're not a believer. And it forces us to ask the second question this morning that I want to wrestle with this morning. What time is it? Because that's exactly what Jesus does next. He points them to the times that they're in. Look what he says. Jesus told him, my time, verse 6, has not yet arrived, but your time is always at hand. Let me just stop right there. One of the big factors of us not being able to examine the the situation that we're in, the times that we're in, I mean, the, the situations that we're in, the skepticism that pervades our hearts is to fail to see what time it is. And this is exactly what brings, Jesus brings to his brother's attention. He says in verse 7, The world cannot hate you, but it does hate me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Go up to the festival. I will not go up to the festival because my time has not yet fully come. After that he had said these things, his, he stayed in Galilee. What's Jesus getting at here? Well, we can see here when he says his time is not yet come, but your time is always at hand. He has in view this whole backdrop of the Feast of the Booths. See, what he's going to slowly do, even though they can't see it, is he wants them to remember that the fe- we need to remember that the Feast of Booths, the Tabernacles, was this harvest feast, as we mentioned earlier. It was the final feast, it was the fullness of the annual harvest that had been reaped for the people. It was a time of great joy as it represented the final harvest of the year and the people could celebrate the fruit of all that God had provided through their faithful work. But the feast also remembered God's faithfulness to his people as they lived in temporary dwellings on, in the wilderness. This is why they would build their temporary shelters there and have this big national camp out. And it's why it's known as the Feast of the Shelters. But like everyone else in Jewish history, like everything else rooted in Jewish history, as I said a minute ago, these major feasts carry a, a, a deeper meaning. A meaning that his brothers had failed to see. See, his brothers failed to see, and they failed to see what, the implications of what they were demanding of Jesus. Right? See, what Jesus is telling them through these words is, you want the fullness of time to come, but you don't want what must happen for that to truly take place. You, know, you, you won't shelter from the brokenness of this world and your sin without the consequence for your sin. 
sin demands that God's righteous wrath be just pushed place on God's people, on the people, because he's holy. But God placed his wrath for God's people on who? Jesus. He puts his wrath on his son so that we might live under the shelter of his blood, which he, his holiness provides perfect and sufficient cover for. So when Jesus is using these words here, he's not cloaking anything. He's actually showing them exactly what these feasts have been saying all along, how they should have been ready to see Jesus for who he was because it's been in the system all the way through. Jesus said that his time has not come because his time was the feast of the unleavened bread. The Passover. The Passover feast remembered that God's blood provision for his people who trusted in him by faith to provide shelter from his wrath when he would, his wrath would become unhinged on Egypt on the firstborn of every household. But Jesus is the firstborn of God's household. And he bears the full weight of God's wrath for his people. His time hasn't come yet in this context of this story. See, Jesus can't get to consummation. We can't get to the end of the story until we get to the start of the story to see what actually must take place. See, when you understand the full sequence of the festivals annually, what you see is a microcosm of the redemptive story of, hi of history. We see the whole scope and sequence of God's work being told in the life of Israel, and they don't see it. Passover feast was the first integral part of the feast story, the first picture of the redemption story. It, it, it figures, prefigures God's covenants and provides the means of redeeming grace through the atoning lamb of his son Jesus. Then the story of redemption continues to the feast of the Pentecost, whereby the people of God are to be called to be a holy people, living with the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit through them and offering the first fruits of their lives, all of their lives, for the kingdom of God. Amen. And only then, the feast of the tabernacles is the finality of it. It's the consummation of the harvest, the finishing of the work that is finally in Christ when he returns to establish the fullness of his kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. His brothers were asking him to do something, but Jesus said there's stuff that has to happen before. You see the whole scope of redemption in the feasts of Israel. Have you ever thought about it that way? Have you ever considered the beauty of the gospel being displayed through these things? See, Jesus' brothers didn't understand this as they were trying to provoke their brother to serve their own plans and purposes for their lives. This is what we do, right? We want God to serve our ends, our plans, our purposes. But Jesus says to them, it's always your time to do these things. What does that mean? Well, what that meant was that if you don't believe, the entirety of your life should be spent figuring out that end. Because God's judgment is coming. God's judgment is coming. If they lived only for the temporary gifts and the glories of this world, they would not truly get the joy of that ultimate feast one day. You get it? 
See, the rest of the world wants God to be their God, the God that they want to fashion in their own image. But God says, it can't be this way. And so as long as you're looking for that, you will never experience that ultimate joy that God has created us for, friends, ever. So what does this mean for you and I? Well, what it means is we need to think about the times we're in. It depends on a couple of factors, whether you're part of the church or you're not part of the church. For the church, our time, the blood-bought, redeemed of Christ, our time, well, our time is called to be in that Feast of the Weeks, that Feast of Pentecost time. Be remembered of that. Remember that, my friends. This is our time to be workers in the harvest. This is a message that I believe many Christians and many churches need to rediscover and recapture today. That, that we fall into skepticism as God's people when we forget the time that God has called us to live in right now as the church. To be workers in the harvest. To be the first fruits of our lives for the ends of Christ and for the glory of Jesus everywhere we go. We fall into skepticism when we turn the Christian life into this pursuit of our best self. Brothers and sisters, we, are we not tempted to staple on fruit to our lives and staple on fruit to our life in Christ in so many ways that we think is actually aiding our Christian life when it, it does not? Think about it. I staple on the fruit of well, I'm not a fulfilled Christian if I don't have community that looks like a rock around me, myself. And we staple that kind of condition onto the gospel. I'm not really me if I don't have the community that I want around me. So we staple this fruit to our lives. Or I'm not a whole Christian if I don't have the most fulfilled marriage that I want. And so then we staple that condition onto the gospel. Or... I'm not a whole Christian if I don't have the job that pays what I want and has gives me the schedule I desire. So then, therefore, we staple that onto our Christian life. I am not a whole Christian if I don't pursue every end to my personal health, whether it's psychologically, emotionally, physically, or relationally. And we staple that fruit to our life. You know what happens when you staple fruit, an apple that's fallen off the tree, back to the tree? Any guesses? It rots. It rots. It's not part of the gospel. These might be very good things for us to pursue. These might be very good ends, and these might live to a well life, well lived, to be sure, but they are not part of the gospel. They are not part of our ultimate hope, friends. So, friends, we've got to stop stapling conditions to the gospel in order for us to have wholeness in Christ. We're demanding something of Jesus. It's like his brothers were demanding of Jesus. You must fulfill my ends and my desires and my pursuits and my purposes in order for me to really see you as the king that I want to serve my life with. That's not the gospel. If you have a marriage that's struggling, carry on, my friends, and keep trusting Jesus. If you have kids who are wandering away from Jesus, carry on and keep preaching the gospel. If you don't have a job that, you're, that, that fulfills you or pays you what you think you deserve, carry on and trust Jesus to provide for you. If you don't have the, the issues of, your, of the health that you want, whether that's psychologically or, 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 or emotionally or relationally or physically, carry on, people, and trust Jesus in it. Stop stapling dead fruit to the tree. That's what his brothers were doing and they, because they didn't see the times that they were in. 
The time for your consummation, the time for your wholeness has not yet arrived. It will arrive when Jesus returns. And friends, until then, we will walk with a limp through this entire life. And Jesus still loves you. God still loves you. He is not going to abandon you. He's not going to abandon me. But for the world, the times are different, are they not? For the church, these times are true for us. But for the world, they're different times. For the skeptical, unbelieving world that wants God for their own making, friends, the Bible has one clear message for them. And maybe this is you. I don't know. Maybe there's someone in this room right now that has not given their life to Christ. You must prepare for judgment. I get no joy out of saying that to you. But it's true. And if you're here this morning and you've not given your life to Christ, you have only one aim in your life. And that is to ask yourself, does the life I'm leading, is it going to spare the judgment of God? Or is it going to earn the judgment of God? That's it. That's all it is. And if you look at the world around us, they may not frame it that way, but that's the life they're leading, leading, aren't they not? See, the finality of everything is found in God and his judgment on the world and as, the, as its true end. If, friends, if this is you, turn from your sin. Turn from your trespasses against God. Turn to God as your true and only king and sovereign. Turn to his son Jesus who's met all the conditions for your salvation in himself. Turn to him. And knowing the time, it's not too late. It's not too late for anyone in here or anyone out there right now. Now there will be a time when it is too late, but now is not that time. As long as Jesus tarries, the time is now for us to repent and believe the good news of Jesus. This is what we do. And we're friends, arm yourselves, believer, with this message. It is not until Jesus returns. It is time to work the harvest fields and go out there and make sure that no one, no one on your ground, on your terms, as best as you're able to, is going to be able to walk into a Christless eternity. Don't do it. But let me also encourage you to wrestle with one last question. What do you expect of a life like this? What are you and I to expect of this? If we truly embrace this lifestyle, if we truly put all of our hope in Christ, and we truly embrace the time that we're in as, as harvest workers, what is it that you and I should expect of this? Because Jesus does something peculiar here. He tells his brothers he's not going to go up to the harvest, but what does he do? He does. Now, you might think, well, that seems a little shady of Jesus. And that's the first thought I had, too. But it's not shady. You know why? Because the whole context of Jesus not going to the harvest was not that he didn't want to go, to the har go up to the festival. It was because he was not going to go up to the means in which they told him to. He was not going to go up there and make a public spectacle of himself because the time is not yet. But that doesn't mean he can't go up there secretively to kind of see the condition of everything that is around him. So he does, right? And what does Jesus see? Well, he sees people running around trying to find out where Jesus is and they're these Jews, the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders there, where is he? And then he finds a bunch of people and they're secretly having these conversations, they're murmuring, he's a good man. No, he's actually quite deceptive. And there's just all this banter about Jesus. The whole festival 
was about Jesus, and Jesus didn't need me to be there. Because everyone's consumed with, who's this Jesus? He didn't need to go publicly. The buzz was already happening. And he's watching all of this take place. But as you see this last few verses unfold, can I just ask us to consider the kind of life that we should expect as Jesus' followers? And then we'll be done. One, we need to recognize that there's a, there's a foolishness and hardness of religious dogmatism that tries to control people's actions and behaviors. See, the Jewish leaders in Jesus' day, these religious leaders, they thought that they could make people more spiritual by controlling them and controlling the narrative, intimidating people. But what did it do to the people? It drove them underground. They wouldn't talk publicly about Jesus. They're still wrestling with Jesus, but they, they weren't going to make it public. And this is what happens. Like, guys, friends, our, the Jews here, these Jewish leaders, they, they ruled with condemnation and suspicion. And friends, we can, if we're not careful, we as Christians can do the same thing. Our theology is to be held with hope and winsomeness, not as a means of, of social or religious intimidation. See, I believe, and, I'm, and I've been here, I've been this guy, I've been a, I don't know, I, I, was, I was quite a theological jerk back in my, in my earlier years. And I grieve that. I grieve that. Oh, yeah, I see, I see Jeff Williams uh, telling him, he's nodding his head, he's from Providence, and they know these days. I was not humble. And friends, many of us today, in an effort to defend the truthfulness of the Christian faith, we use methods to intimidate and guilt people into religious obedience that lacks a true heart for change. Yes, we must speak the truth, but we must do so with grace and a winsome tone so as to win people to the hope, to hope in the heart of the gospel, which is Jesus Christ crucified. That's their hope. Second thing that I want you to notice about this whole end of the sequence here is, is that there's a fickleness in human understanding. That's the world we're inheriting. There are going to be people who kind of like you but don't like you. There are going to be people who are kind of suspicious of you. They're going to think you're some of you got to think of a religious wingnut. I mean, this is, that's just the world we live in. Some people say, hey, he's a good people. Eh, I don't know. They're kind of weird and they're out there. They're far out in the left lane. Few people in this world have not heard about Jesus, regardless if they've been in church or not. They know about Jesus. But sadly, since the beginning, since all the centuries, opinions about Jesus have not changed all that much over the last 2,000 years. And most of it's reduced down to two things. Jesus is either a good man or he's a lunatic. The world basically sums Jesus up with one of those two things. Just like his unbeliever and brothers did. They turn, the world turns Jesus into... A morality tale. Jesus is no morality tale. He is a savior of the universe. The church must abandon the social good Jesus. Even as at the same time we do the works of mercy that he calls us to. Abandon the social good Jesus, but still embrace the, the works of mercy that he calls us to. The church must abandon the, um, must work to expose the world, expose the world to the real Jesus. 
that he's not some social uh, revolutionary or some religious nut, but he is the fully God, fully man, divine son of God who was sent from the Father to save sinners like you and like me and like all your friends that you know. This is the Jesus that we serve. This is why the winsomeness matters in our tone. If they see you as a self-righteous religious prophet, they will most likely miss Jesus. He is the savior of your sins as well, not just theirs. So don't be afraid to be vulnerable. Don't be afraid, as I said earlier, to be an enter into the sorrow. And then the third thing and last is, don't rem- just remember that there's, a, there's public disdain for the gospel, with go- of, of gospel conviction. Jesus says himself, they hate me because I, I expose what the world's all about. There's public disdain for gospel conviction. There's a cost to following Jesus. Following Jesus can and it will be a fearful thing from time to time. Jesus told his brothers that the world hates him. And, and, and why would we think that if the world hates Jesus, that, he won't, that the world won't hate those who follow Jesus too? What are we expecting? I've said this before and I'll say it again. You don't have to prove your weirdness to the world with every matter of opinion about everything going on in the world. You, have to disp- you, you are weird simply by being a follower of Jesus. Embrace it. I'm okay being that. The song by DC Talk, Jesus Freak, is a, good, is a good example of that. And Jesus felt no need to prove himself to these unbelieving brothers. Perhaps that's a practical lesson for you and I too. As we're living in this world, commit your way to three simple things. Preach the gospel, pursue holiness, and share the way of salvation with anyone that God puts in your path. Everything else is a waste of time. Now, I don't mean that to say that the good work we do as families and jobs or whatever, but ultimately, this is the end of the matter. Keep it the end of the matter. All right. So let's prepare for the table this morning. And as we prepare for the table this morning, I just want to remind you that you are participating in this seal as a sign that one day you will find eternal joy at the completion of, the, of, of the God's gospel harvest that you and I will get the privilege to feast on one day, that table of the Lord. So as you come, you come needy. As you come, you come expectant. You come joyfully. And you come waiting. God, help us now as we leave. We prepare our time for the table, God. Thank you, Jesus, for this word this morning as we get back in John. Just thank you, Jesus, for the, the fact that we can see you so clearly through the things that you provided for us, like these feasts. God, help us to see Jesus more. It's in Christ's name. Amen.